Okay, everyone, and a good afternoon to you all. Um, this is Anantha Mali again from Washington Hospital Center. Um, I have the pleasure once again of introducing our speaker for today. Um, Dr. Vani Garg is one of our cardiology faculty here at Hospital Center. Uh, she came to us in uh, 2021, just this past year, uh, from New York, uh, where she previously served as the Associate Program Director for the Cardiology Fellowship at Mount Sinai Morningside in New York. Um, and uh, that's after completing residency and fellowship within that same health system. And she's going to be talking to us today about endocarditis and the critical care setting. Dr. Gargan, to you. Great. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Um, so we'll get straight into it. So today's plan is to go over some pearls of endocarditis, a lot of the things that we know and remember, but it's always good to see a slide and, and remind ourselves of some of the small details. Um, specifics to right heart endocarditis, left heart endocarditis with many case examples, device related, um, prosthetics related, some rare locations, some unique examples that came up in uh, clinical practice recently, and a very specific entity of post-transcatheter aortic valve replacement, which is becoming a growing population that has uh, more cases of infective endocarditis. And then I tried my best to find very specifics to critical care, but you guys take care of the sickest of the sick. And so um, just a light touch on that at the end. So jumping into it, um, endocarditis, we all know the definition, but it's, you know, again, it's good to see it. Defined by a focus of infection within the heart, it affects three to 10 per 100,000 uh, 100, people per year about 40,000 to 50,000 new cases per year, and this is mostly about U.S. data, about $120,000 per patient for the hospital charges. Mortality is sort of quoted in the 15 to 20 range, some are up to 40 range, but on average, most studies would still say it's about 30% at one year with no improvement over the last two decades, and about 30 to 50% undergo surgery. So surgery is not our go-to uh, treatment for this. Um, so endocarditis comes basically in three stages. We, again, are very familiar with the bacteremia. That's classic. Um, ways of bacteria getting into the bloodstream via the mouth, the GI tract, GU tract, uh, the skin, via catheters, post-procedural, uh, any sort of interventions that we've done can be a risk to introducing bacteria. Um, but the next two phases, I think, are very interesting. So Adhesion, uh, we talk about abnormal or damaged endothelium in the heart, and that being the larger nidus for bacteria to adhere. So a lot of the, um, specifically the myocardium and the endothelium in the heart are no longer resistant to these bacterial adhesions and to then become colonized. That's step three, where there's ongoing uh, inflammation, the cycle of bacterial proliferation, thrombosis, monocyte recruitment, uh, eventually, that progresses to a mature vegetation, and one thing that I remember very clearly the CT surgeons talked about when I was in fellowship is about a biofilm, and this is basically an embedded, it's embedded within the extracellular polysaccharide matrix. It protects the bacteria from any host immune defenses, oftentimes uh, affects the penetration of antibiotic therapy. And it's particularly challenging in device-related infections. And oftentimes, from the surgical side of things, you can actually get a sense of the biofilm when, from imaging, you didn't actually see anything. So just to reiterate, the bacteremia we know, 
really there's damage to the endothelium that then causes the risk of adhesions. And then this biofilm production is something that uh, we will talk about later on as well. So what are the bugs? Uh, Staph aureus is, is now about 30% of the cases, especially in the developed world. Most common for prosthetic valve endocarditis, abbreviated as PVE in several uh, parts of the talk. Often requiring redo surgery and mortality is, again, close to 50%, so higher than what we said was the average uh, 30% for most cases. Coagulus negative staphylococci, abbreviated as CONS, is about 10%. So that's more likely to occur with the prosthetic valve endocarditis in the first year often antibiotic resistant and can often be highly destructive um, with perivalvular lesions. The remaining, again, all sort of take comprise 10%. So streptococci, enterococci, uh, the HASEC organisms, so they're listed off for you here. Um, also included in that HASEC organism, less than 5% group is the um, fungi. And then there is a large entity of uh, blood culture negative endocarditis, so about 10 to 20% of patients have um, cultures that are negative, but then we are able to see some vegetation or concern for endocarditis by their imaging. So how do we find the vegetation? So again, very, very familiar. We're just going to go a brief overview of this kind of stuff. Um, so transthoracic echocardiogram, I'll show you guys a uh, algorithm for evaluation of patients with infected endocarditis. And it always starts with the transthoracic echo in terms of imaging. Obviously, there's history in the physical exam, but in terms of imaging, uh, we go to transthoracic echocardiography. For suspected native valve endocarditis, the specificity is very good, 90%. Sensitivity is a wide range, as you can see. For prosthetic valve endocarditis, the numbers drop significantly. And so in those cases, we often go straight um, or complementary to a transesophageal echo. So when do we do those? When the transthoracic is positive and we have to evaluate for other lesions or complications. Um, when there's devices uh, that are involved and we don't have good visualization on the transthoracic. And overall to increase our sensitivity and specificity. One thing that is highly um, challenging is the prosthetic valve, even with the prosthetic valve imaging under normal circumstances, then you add endocarditis and the patient complexity, patient's illness. So one thing that can mitigate that is uh, 3D assistance, and I have some examples of that as well. So other complementary um, modalities are cardiac CT, and this is to assess more for paravalvular anatomy, abscess formation, mycotic aneurysms, and then FDG PET, which I'm not going to touch on very much here. It's mostly outpatient, hasn't been able to get it done inpatient except for one case recently. And uh, this is really to see the metabolic activity and um, more useful in device-related infections, and we'll get to that later. So here's the big algorithm from the recent update um, in 2020 for patients with a risk, a risk or with suspected endocarditis, so either native or prosthetic valves. So you look at the blood cultures, you go through the modified Duke criteria, and you have a heart valve team approach. And um, those are all class one indications and a transthoracic, as I said, trans, uh, class one indication. So just going through this briefly, the main, the main thing to take away from this is that you do a transthoracic and from there, if you have some concern or suspicion, you go to a TE. If there is um, inadequate images, you can go to a cardiac CT. And if you have some option towards doing an FDG PET, that's also listed in as a 2A criteria, 2A um, indication, 
but mostly the, the standard is transthoracic to transesophageal. So jumping into some great case examples because so I'm a very visual learner. I draw things. I, re, I remember things from videos. Um, so the majority of this presentation is going to be a lot of case examples. So we have a 78-year-old female with a history of hypertension and diabetes. She reports several months of increasing leg edema and presents with anasarca at this point and fever. So I'll give you guys a few seconds to look at it. Um, I have the chat pulled up in case anyone has wants to put in there any answers or thoughts. Let me let it play again. All right, so one thing that you can notice in the, um, the left-sided image that the leaflets are very stuck, very thickened looking, and, and very limited in their mobility. So here we have a continuous wave Doppler through the tricuspid valve, and one thing that's very notable is the triangular appearance of the uh, systolic waveform, so it's the regurgitant waveform. And so in this case, we actually have a patient with carcinoid, um, severe tricuspid regurgitation. Uh, you see that additional pathology due to the marked stenosis and leaflet non-coaptation. And in this patient's case, the, the, the true diagnosis of endocarditis was not necessarily um, clearly seen. It was definitely more, more in line with carcinoid and carcinoid being the etiology of the fever. But I wanted to add this as the first case to say that workup for endocarditis is a challenging one. You'll see large vegetations as I'll have in the presentation, but you'll also have patients like this where the biofilm or some abnormality to the valve could always be uh, an itis for infection. All right, so now to our next case. A 35-year-old male with a history of an inguinal hernia repair, long-standing IV drug abuse, and presents for worsening lower back pain. All right, so as you can see from the video, Maybe the RV is a little big. Um, image quality is pretty decent. Nothing glaringly um, out of, you know, out of the view in the first few images. We zoom in a little bit better on the tricuspid valve, and we can see there is a fair amount of regurgitation. And then on the image on the right, you can see the leaflet prolapses with the vegetation coming through that uh, right in here of the RA. So in this, and this is the, again, the continuous wave Doppler through the tricuspid valve for this patient. And so this is the second example of severe tricuspid regurgitation, and in this case, due to the vegetation and its disruption of the valve function. And just to explain what the reason is for this triangular waveform, you have a rapid equalization of pressures between the two chambers, between the RA and the RV, because of the large flow that's going uh, regurgitant from the severe uh, tricuspid regurgitation. So essentially the equivalent of this atrial V wave, you're losing all of that very quickly and uh, causes a triangular waveform. So in severe tricuspid regurgitation, one of the things that we see on echo is this D-shaped septum, and this happens in diastole when you have volume overload. And this is indifferent to a more circular shape when you're in systole. If you were to have the same D-shaped septum in systole, it's it, um, suggest pulmonary hypertension, but in these patients, especially with the endocarditis, the valve destruction, and the regurgitant 
Um, severity, another indicator of it here, is through the M-mode tracing. All right, moving on to the pulmonic valve. So this is a case of a 36-year-old male with a history of IV drug abuse for 10 years, presents with fever and chills. So I've collected videos of patients over the years. Um, even I'm about seven, six, seven years from fellowship, but this is my third job for very wonderful reasons. And um, I've collected images from fellowship through all three of my positions. And so this one in particular is from fellowship. And you can see the, the vegetation here. So the image quality is going to vary as the presentation goes on. Um, years ago, I used my phone to record things, and now I can clip and put it into PowerPoint from the reading station. So here you see a vegetation on the pulmonic valve. This is a short axis view on the aortic valve. And then here you can see my attending coming back and forth in disbelief with his green scrubs and leaning in towards the screen and coming back out as uh, he had never seen a case of uh, infective endocarditis of the pulmonic valve. So right heart endocarditis, about five to 10% of cases, so obviously much less common than left-sided endocarditis. The tricuspid valve is the one that's usually involved, about 90% of cases, and the pulmonic valve less than two. Just as a side note, uh, side story, my father is a cardiologist and has been in practice for 40 years, and he has yet to have a patient with a pulmonic valve endocarditis. We see it probably more commonly now uh, just because of being in large, large centers, um, urban populations, and large patient volumes, but it's definitely on the, the very rare side in terms of number of endocarditis patients. Other uncommon sites are within the Chiari network, eustachian valve having a vegetation on it, mural vegetations along the endocardium or within the cordae. It is associated strongly with uh, injection drug use for the right-sided endocarditis. And actually part of the composition of the um, drugs that are injected have a portion of talc within them. I don't know if that's still the case, but this is traditionally what the thought was, that uh, intravenous drug use then exacerbates endothelial damage by that talc injection. And then this causes, again, with our three stages, anitis for infection. And there's a large bacterial load from the peripheral injection to the tricuspid valve first, which is why it has the 90% of cases. Right-sided endocarditis can also be a lead and catheter associated. Typically for right-sided, the vegetations are larger in size. Through several studies reviews, the mean length was about 17 millimeters. There's a high embolic potential when it gets larger than 15 millimeters. And so pulmonary infarcts, abscesses, and empyemas, so embolic events from the right side, are very common up to about 80% of cases. What's less common, though, is local extravalvular extension um, compared to the left side endocarditis. So you'll have a vegetation on the tricuspid valve. A piece of it, if it's large, can flick off and become embolic, but it's seeding within the right ventricle and having local extension is less common. There are some approaches in terms of debridement of the infected tissue rather than elimination or valve of the valvular regurgitation as targeted therapies for IV drug users. And uh, this has been something that's been explored more recently and basically to angiovac the vegetation. And so this avoids the risk of surgical procedures and bacterial seeding of the prosthetic material in the future should there be continued IV drug use. 
So uh, one other entity that's very important to keep in mind is right-sided endocarditis from a left-side issue. So ventricular septal defects, especially membranous defects that may not have closed over time, can be a reason for a right-sided endocarditis. So the vegetation is actually on the left side, often the mitral valve. The infected flow, so the flow off of the infected mitral valve and the vegetation emerge through the membranous defect and that flow stream goes through the defect and aligns perfectly with the tricuspid annulus towards hitting the tricuspid valve leaflet. And so this can cause uh, vegetation on the tricuspid valve. So this basically is a very specific example but reiterates the bigger point that transesophageal echocardiogram is key to looking for additional valve involvement or actual structural involvement or structural compromise. All right, moving on to the mitral valve. So here's a case of a 63-year-old male, history of hypertensive heart disease, presents with dyspnea, and on exam, he is febrile with a grade 3 out of 6 systolic murmur and a diastolic rumble throughout the precordium. So this one, I didn't have to put an arrow in, it's very clear. There's a large vegetation attached to the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve. If you look at the aortic valve, it, potentially there's something there as well, but in this, I'll tell you, in this um, patient, this ended up just being the way that the image is angled, that it looks hazy and fuzzy towards the aortic valve. The main pathology was here in the, in the mitral valve. Here is that same patient with um, two very unique views. So on the left, you can see by color Doppler, there is turbulence both in diastole and in systole. Systole is a little bit more hidden. In diastole, you can see the mass is essentially acting uh, partially stenotic as well. And in the short axis view, within the mitral valve uh, fish mouth at the level of the base of the uh, heart, you can see the echo density bobbing within, it, within the structures of the leaflets um, during systole and diastole. It's the same patient on an apical view, and uh, so I'll tell you the image quality was tough, obviously, but this is one of the best ones we could get for this patient. And what you do see, though, is the MR uh, was detectable from continuous wave Doppler with not the greatest, most dense jet, um, but you do see with the arrow here the Kawanda effect of the regurgitant um, flow going along the atrium wall and probably due to the very eccentric flow. All right, moving to our next case. Um, we have a 20-year-old male to female transgender patient who has a history of a hormonal gender transition. Um, she had a recent bout of acute cystitis and now has presented a few weeks later with fever, dyspnea, and myalgias for one week period of time. Blood culture was positive for group B strep and it ended up being S. agalecti. All right, so here are her images, and right off the bat, you can see on the non-color transthoracic parasternal long axis view, maybe her leaflets look a little bit thickened. They might have a touch of borderline, but they wouldn't meet criteria for prolapse. And otherwise, the cavity looks slightly larger in size. RV looks okay. And on the image on the right with color, there is definitely a significant uh, mitral regurgitation. The, the origin of the regurgitation is a little hard to discern from here. It does look somewhat eccentric, posteriorly directed, 
but of course this would require further imaging to get a detailed view of how the valve is. So on transesophageal echocardiogram, so this is her 3D image. And so what we're looking at in the middle of the screen is the mitral valve. Surgeon's view, you have the aortic valve on top. So next to the aortic valve, you have the anterior leaflet. And the posterior leaflet is not super well visualized. And there's a elongated echo density at the lateral base of the mitral posterior leaflet coming in and out of view where you can see the arrow, which is where the um, vegetation was originating from. So in this patient, actually, we saw resolution of the vegetation on the follow-up transthoracic and transesophageal studies. She continued to have uh, exertional dyspnea, and part of the reason for monitoring over a longer period of time was the young age. Um, but she did continue to have a persistent severe mitral regurgitation, and after a heart team discussion was decided for mitral valve repair. I saw her in post-op, and uh, she was doing very well with resolution of all of her symptoms. All right, moving on to the aortic valve. So we have a bunch of cases here for the aortic valve. So 71-year-old female, the history includes hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and moderate aortic stenosis. She presented with syncope. It was a witnessed event, no prodrome that they could describe. The exam uh, was notable for being febrile, grade two out of six systolic murmur, three out of six diastolic murmur at the aortic areas. So here I have some still frame images. These are actually uh, extracted from a abstract, a poster submission that we had done one of my um, early years as an attending. And so uh, these are the visuals from there. I wasn't able to, I have the uh, video images coming up, but these are the transthoracic images for her. And as you can see on the top left, her aortic valve um, at the end of diastole looks different something there's something different about it, it has two bright echo densities right in the um, zone of coaptation and there's you know there's a significant sense of alfalfa dilation aphanin aorta doesn't look dilated but just something looks different and off about the valve morphology on the right short axis film yeah you see again if it were moving obviously that would be more ideal i'll show you that in a minute um, but in the short axis view here you see these same bright echo densities the um, whether or not this is a true tricuspid, bicuspid, or other is difficult to discern. And she had carried a diagnosis of moderate aortic stenosis in the past. Here, while the suprasternal view is slightly overdrawn, the velocity peak, you could generously say it's at least 3.5 with a degree of aortic regurgitation here and the pressure halftime being 444 milliseconds. So would fall into the moderate category. So because the numbers and the appearance of the aortic valve didn't really align with what her history or even her reason for presentation, uh, we decided to go ahead with a, a, quad, um, a transesophageal echo. And as I have listed here, we found that she has a quadricuspid aortic valve. And this was the main issue for her, um, probably unrelated to the syncopal event, but definitely explaining her progressive dyspnea. And she had predominant aortic regurgitation as her pathology. So here we have um, about 8, 120, 118 degrees. On the transesophageal echocardiogram, we have the view of the aortic regurgitation. And as you can see, the P is essentially the zone of uh, convergence of the regurgitant flow 
is very central and very um, similar essentially to what we were seeing of the long axis view, the personal long axis view on the transthoracic study, where something was just off right in the middle and uh, didn't look exactly like a native, uh, I should say, not native, but a, a classic trileaflet aortic valve. And so further investigation was warranted. One of the questions that came up during this case was that she was febrile. Again, is this infective endocarditis? Is there a biofilm? Is there some possibility of that because she has an abnormal morphology to the valve, presumably with some endothelial dysfunction? Um, but regardless, because of her additional symptoms and dyspnea and um, the cavity size being on the larger size, we decided to have her go ahead and get uh, aortic valve replacement. So just as her EKG is over here, not really anything glaringly abnormal, anything that would be uh, indicative of other pathologies. And just in general for quadricuspid, since it's a rare case, again, that um, very often won't be seen, often is seen post-mortem. In this patient, we were able to get the surgical specimen in, as included here. Uh, there's no gender preference. It's associated mostly with severe aortic regurgitation and does have associated uh, anomalous coronary arteries in about 10% of cases. But again, QAV is the kind of thing where the number of patients evaluated and known for this pathology is very low. And so 10% is what happens to be seen in these patients. Um, and so, so this was a, a very rewarding, very interesting case. All right, on to our next one. A 67-year-old male, previously asymptomatic, uh, now coming in with fatigue, dyspnea on exertion for the last four weeks. On exam, his uh, temperature was 100.8, blood pressure 130 over 70, and heart rate tachycardic at 110 beats per minute. He had a grade 3 out of 6 pan-systolic murmur at the apex and a grade 3 out of 4 early diastolic murmur in the aortic area. So, Pretty classic on all the patients. They have murmurs, they're quite loud, and uh, febrile, dyspnea, and they come in for more evaluation. So going straight to the money shot, the patient um, had a transthoracic echo and then went for a transesophageal echocardiogram. And on the first view, you have your uh, anteriorly um, uh, anti-flexed view at zero, so you get the LVOT view here and you see there's full valve destruction with uh, vegetation and prolapsing of the, or essentially flail of the aortic valve. With that color, you can see this large, large, uh, very eccentric jet going along the anterior aspect of the, um, along the anterior mitral valve, tucking underneath and then going along the lateral portion of the LV. And interestingly here, there isn't that much mitral regurgitation. There wasn't that much mitral stenosis either from the effect of the regurgitant jet from the aortic regurgitation. Um, but again, the valve uh, was, was completely destroyed and then the patient went for surgery. So in this patient, um, he ended up having Klebsiella pneumonia. And um, the pneumonia is the, is the uh, organism. The culprit source being a urinary tract infection, and this is a rare bug of the endocarditis entities, only 1.2% of cases, with a very high mortality as it can be very virulent, as you've seen in this case with the valve destruction. So one thing I wanted to uh, go over in terms of echo evaluations and these patients, especially with this severe aortic regurgitation, 
This is that same patient, and as you can see, the, there's significant beat-to-beat -beat variability in terms of the jet density. And um, so when we look at pressure halftime, the sonographer here did the, his or her best to get a pressure halftime measured here at uh, 244 milliseconds. And severe, technically, we put into the divided categories of pressure halftime less than 200 milliseconds. But the problem is, is when you have uh, abnormal diastology, so abnormal LV relaxation, it can artificially truncate your decay time. And so then that can cause an artificially uh, lo lower number, or sorry, artificially higher number, um, less time. And that will then cause you to have the numbers fall into the technical moderate range for severity. So aortic regurgitation does depend dramatically on ventricular compliance and hemodynamics, the LVDP as well as diastolic filling. And um, if in this case, because it falls in the 200 to 500 range, technically, if you were to just go by pressure halftime, you would say moderate severity. However, as we saw, this is clearly a destructive valve with very severe aortic regurgitation. All right, moving on to our next case. A 66-year-old male with a history of peripheral arterial disease, status plus left common femoral artery to popliteal bypass, and it was found to be chronically occluded. He was known to have uh, poor wound healing with toe ulcerations and repeated visits, and at one point had, had grown out blood culture positive for group B strep. And notable here, so I only gave you one view of the aortic valve, um, but it does look, it looks thickened. There looks like there may be some echodensity towards the LVOT side of the aortic valve. And uh, mitral valve looks relatively okay in this view. All right, so adding some color doppler to our image. Now we're not able to see the valve as well, but we do see a fair amount of, of aortic regurgitation. The severity in this view doesn't look um, very severe. Could it be severe? Could it be moderate? Uh, you'd have to get more data. But in this view, at least we can discern there is some degree of um, aortic regurgitation and probably mild mitral regurgitation. All right, so further views. Now we're in our apical, somewhat five, somewhat four, something in between the two chambers. But you do see the regurgitant jet uh, into the LV on the left image. And then you see the continuous wave Doppler, again, now looking at the pressure halftime. I didn't circle it for highlighting the view, but you see the pressure halftime is 294 milliseconds. Um, the density of the jets in this one are more consistent and quite dense from each beat. But again, if you were to go just by pressure halftime, you would say that this is in the moderate range. So on this study, uh, this transthoracic study, the report was uh, both lesions being moderate severity, so moderate mitral regurgitation and moderate aortic regurgitation. The patient was otherwise stable and treated with ceftriaxone for one month. Um, however, he was readmitted with uh, about a tachycardia, supraventricular tachycardia, um, precipitating hypotension. So we went straight to transesophageal echocardiogram, and this looks actually pretty similar to the other case that I showed with the aortic valve. Um, leaflets affected looks as if they are prolapsed or flailed. And on the left, you have a better view of the aortic valve, and um, in both views, you have a decent view of the mitral valve. The mitral valve, again, looks pretty clean. It looks more like there is a functional component to the leaflets not co-opting rather than a 
vegetation uh, affecting the mitral valve function. And so with color Doppler, so on the left, we're looking at the aortic valve. And uh, here we can clearly see a fair amount of color aliasing and uh, regurgitation on both the short axis view and then the orthogonal plane of the long axis view equivalent. And on the right, this was the um, optimal image that I was able to, to extract from the study for the PISA. And the PISA here doesn't look very significant. And so, you know, I went back and forth through the images a fair number of times, but uh, there is a degree of mitral regurgitation, whether it's at least moderate or moderate to severe. Um, in this study, I ended up calling it uh, moderate to severe, but there was uh, abnormal function of both of the valve leaflets and that progressed since the prior study. So uh, this patient, as they were admitted in the hospital that night, developed flash pulmonary edema with acute hypoxia and they were emergently taken to the OR. So this is their post-op echo, and just to highlight what they had done. Um, so the patient, you can see in the RVOT, they still have a swan in place um, from, from their post-op images. So this patient is, uh, ended up getting an, a mitral valve annuloplasty and a bioprosthetic aortic valve. So the annuloplasty reason was that the valve actually, when they were in the OR looking as we did on the transthoracic echo um, from here, or sorry, transesophageal echo from here, the leaflets themselves for the mitral valve looked fairly intact with, with good function. And it was more of a functional component because of the um, LV dilation that the leaflets were not collapsing and causing the mitral regurgitation. So, the attempt was to repair the valve and uh, replace the aortic valve given the destruction that had happened from the endocarditis. And so now we see a nicely functioning uh, mitral valve repair and aortic valve replacement. All right, so now just to go through, we saw one case um, from start to finish of a patient with the infective endocarditis a thought towards initial antibiotic management and then refractory disease, worsening clinical status, and then being sent to surgery. And so that patient would fall primarily on the left side of this algorithm. So initially the patient seemed to have what, what would be stable left-sided infective endocarditis um, and had initial antibiotic treatment, initial stabilization, and then um, change to oral over uh, after the TE. That didn't happen in this patient because they were planned for four weeks of intravenous um, antibiotics with home infusion, but they did come in with significant valve dysfunction and heart failure slash pulmonary edema by their clinical, um, clinical symptoms. And then they were referred for, they essentially went for early surgery. Early surgery, I guess, is a, is a, um, you know, this one could sort of say is this delayed surgery because it ended up being four weeks from the initial presentation. But if you consider the patient decompensated and then was taken to surgery that night, that would then fall into the category of early surgery. Looking at the rest of the diagram, um, the majority of these we'll get to in the other slides. But part of this is looking at uh, what are the other factors involved with the endocarditis? So do they have an implanted cardiac device? Do they have a prosthetic valve? Do they have continued IV drug use? Are there recurrent emboli or persistent despite, vegetations despite antibiotic use? Um, are there 
uh, large mobile vegetations, and is there any um, concern about uh, hemorrhage? All right, so what are the predictors of to fix or not fix the valves? So um, here are the predictors of non-surgical treatment, so mostly continuing antibiotics and uh, medications from there. Um, our liver disease, so the surgical mortality with someone who has liver disease, the child PU score, um, is significantly increased. And if you add to that endocarditis, the likelihood of them going for surgery is very low. So the, the desire in these patients is to try to maintain them with antibiotics and try to um, avoid any of the catastrophic sequelae that can happen from endocarditis. Um, stroke before surgical decision is, I think we've all seen this, a fair number where we have patients, we have a window, and the window overnight gets complicated by an acute stroke and then, event, and then affects their ability for surgery dramatically. Uh, Staph aureus being the causative bug, although I don't think this is usually as much of a deterrent in more of the patients that I've seen, but I've seen it in the literature. And then an overall poor prognosis if there are other comorbidities that are affecting the patient's overall status. Predictors of surgical treatment, so reasons that we do push to go for surgery in patients with infective endocarditis. And this last case example uh, shows two of them very well. So heart failure, worsening LV function, uh, signs and symptoms of heart failure, volume overload, dyspnea, acute pulmonary edema, um, all of those factoring into heart failure and uh, severe aortic regurgitation. So valve destruction such, such that medical therapy would not improve and the valve has been compromised. Abscess formation, which uh, we will discuss in a few slides as well, but limited penetration of antibiotics. And so the real role uh, for surgery is, is um, far greater than antibiotics in this case. And then embolization risk. So risk reduction is greatest in the first week of antibiotics, and I'll give you some hard numbers uh, in a few slides. Uh, but overall, for the aortic valve or the mitral valve, greater than 10 millimeters, so one centimeter in size, um, will affect the risk, it will increase your risk of embolization. It's definitely much higher with a 15 millimeter size. So it's a 2A indication to take a patient for surgery when it's a 10 millimeter size. Um, but it is showing valve effects. So valve hemodynamics are affected, valve function is affected, and the overall operative risk of the patient is lower. If the uh, vegetation size is larger than 15 millimeters, then that would be a, a class clear one, class one indication for surgery. And if there's um, any, any vegetation 10 millimeters in size, but not necessarily causing complete valve destruction or valve compromise or the you know, operative risk is, is on the higher side, that would be a 2B indication. So there's, there's, if there's a chance to go for surgery, it will be usually under one of these circumstances. But as I mentioned, only about 30 or 50% of patients are going for surgery for endocarditis. So a lot of them will either fall into the category of poor prognosis, liver disease, um, or stroke, which is a fair number of patients, or they uh, are able to be treated with antibiotics with a good result. All right, so in summary, to go over some of the left heart endocarditis uh, facts, the size of the vegetation is uh, related to embolic risk. Embolic events are about 50%, so very, very significant. And this goes along with what we were saying about the acute event in a patient, acute stroke, when you lose your, your window for the surgical intervention. 
Oftentimes the brain is involved, spleen, splenic infarcts, renal infarcts uh, for these embolic events. The risk of an embolic event drops dramatically to 3% after the first week of antibiotics. So that's really, uh, you really want to, we've heard this before, you want to get the antibiotics on quick and on fast, and there's a true reason for that. But even despite therapy, if there's a residual vegetation five millimeters in size that's associated with an increased risk of stroke, and of course there are non-imaging factors that will affect a patient's risk of an embolic event, such as advanced age, diabetes, and the presence of atrial fibrillation, uh, even on anticoagulation. All right, so moving on to cardiac device related. Um, so general, so I didn't have any uh, great examples that I could find quickly for the device leads themselves, um, but I do have in the next slide something very interesting that's important for us to remember about. So in here, the general lifetime infectious risk from an implanted device, pacemakers 1% to fibrillators 2%, CRT, uh, so resynchronization therapy, a biventricular um, device 3%. The endocarditis concerns come from pocket infection, spread then to the tricuspid valve or vegetation isolated to the lead. Transthoracic imaging for device-related endocarditis is not sensitive at all. Basically, you have a lot of artifact from the uh, metal and your ability to pick up small vegetations or uh, compromise to lead function, valves that are involved, uh, tethering to any of the valves, will be affected, and so transesophageal is recommended. Uh, transesophageal echocardiography is re recommended in these patients, and your sensitivity will go up 70 to 90%. And on the right here, I included, so sort of a synthesis of a lot of the diagnostic and treatment algorithms. This is from the European Heart Rhythm Society, and so management essentially hinges on the certainty of whether or not this is an endocarditis infection related to the lead itself. So, just to go through this briefly, on the left, you have positive blood cultures. On the right, you have negative blood cultures. Um, from positive cultures, we have to see whether or not there's a pocket infection or uh, whether this is sort of post-procedural kind of changes. The pocket infection, if there is something in the pocket, you look further, deeper, and see if there's been any spread from the pocket. And then um, here is where, the F as I mentioned before, FDG PET can play a role or tag white blood cell scans. Uh, can play a role to see if you have a metabolically active areas rather than just uh, post-procedural inflammation that's being seen. And, and here you would also look for um, the transesophageal echocardiogram. ICE is used at some time to give a better uh, visualization of the leaves and then also looking for uh, concurrent uh, embolic events that will factor into your decision making. And so if there's a definite systemic infection that we think is lead-related, device-related, the recommendation is device removal and antibiotic therapy. If there is a possible involvement and it's not completely clear, then there, it is reasonable to repeat the blood cultures and can do serial imaging um, so long as the patient's clinical status remains stable. So here's an interesting finding that is an important one that comes up uh, quite unexpectedly, both in endocarditis and non-endocarditis patients. Uh, so this is called ghosting or residuals, or another term that I've heard and seen in the literature is called a cast. So the percutaneous lead extractions, as we were mentioning, if the patient meets criteria that we think the lead is involved and is the etiology of the 
or denitis of the endocarditis and they're a candidate for lead removal, uh, lead extraction, oftentimes in about 15 to 20% of cases, you'll see a retained portion called a, which is essentially a fibrous tissue and it looks like a sleeve formation around where the, the lead was prior. And so, the, I, so this image is an extracted one from a study. Uh, well, some of the ones that I've seen sit right at the mouth of the FVC, and so they don't actually enter as much into the RA, but they're just sitting along the wall, maybe a little adherent to the wall, um, as this same hollow structure with an echo-dense sort of rim around it looking like a sleeve, and that was originally surrounding the wire and what was encapsulating it. And these, these um, ghosts or these casts can have a biofilm on top of them, however, they can last and persist for weeks and uh, you can have cleared your and, um, blood cultures, you can have finished your antibiotic courses and if you were to re-image they would still be present. So at some point these are essentially considered non-infectious residual fibrous tissue that are not going to factor into your decision in terms of whether or not there's continued endocarditis. Okay, moving on to prosthetics. So just as a general of normals, since mostly what I've shown you are valves that have endothelial dysfunction, these are valves that had problems and now have been replaced. So on the left, we have a, a 3D image of a mechanical mitral valve. You see the two uh, bileaflet tilting discs with good motion. And on the right, you have a bioprosthetic aortic valve. And I put in here the components of the stented bioprosthesis, which is essentially what we see. Those three echo-dense portions are the stent posts with uh, greater density for us to be able to see them, and then the three leaflets are moving with nice uh, thin leaflet mobility, and both of these are normal patients, normal studies. Um, one thing that we can see, though, is with, so this is a 31 millimeter magnet used bioprosthetic mitral valve, and uh, in this transesophageal echocardiogram, we see the X-plane is through a Echo-dense structure, sort of this linear, very small structure along the um, annular ring of the prosthesis. And so this could be, a, it's essentially adjacent to the sewing ring. This could be suture material. You cannot rule out vegetation. And, and essentially in these patients, oftentimes the clinical context of uh, whether or not there are blood cultures, whether or not there's fear, whether or not there's persistent symptoms, heart failure, Sort of the other factors that we had talked about will play into the decision of whether or not to uh, proceed with any further more in-depth investigations. One of the things that, and essentially what happened with this patient was prolonged antibiotic therapy and uh, clearing of their blood cultures and improvement of their clinical status. So this was deemed essentially then to be likely um, more suture material than infective endocarditis. Here is a 3D image of the same patient, and along here, it's very faint, but you can make out that little um, echo density that's mobile that doesn't seem to have marked independent motion, doesn't seem to have any other effects, and the function of the valve was normal. All right, so here is something though very different and again, more of a rare case. We don't often see, we can see dehiscence of valve replacements. So a bioprosthetic or, or a mechanical valve dehiscence is seen more often. 
Annuloplasty ring dehiscence are, are less common. So this one I wanted to highlight for sure. Um, this is a 62-year-old male with a history of mitral valve prolapse status post-repair. And he had a recent motor vehicle accident with several skin abrasions that were um, essentially had poor wound healing. So here's a little algorithm. Um, from a very much older article, but this is sort of the initial thoughts on how we deal with organic versus functional MR. Of course, this has changed over time, but the the view of the saddle shape um, of the mitral annulus and replicating that with a repair ring uh, is shown here in all of these options. And so what you see on the right is the mitral valve. You see the ring, and you do see some independent motion of the ring, some rocking of the ring itself. Now with color, you have a very eccentric jet that's going through the gap that I had shown you on the previous image. And I'll show you a, a 3D image coming up, which will really highlight the, the dehiscence and the gap that is uh, formed because of the infected, essentially biofilm over the prosthetic ring and then destruction of the, of its, of its uh, attachment to the annual, to the tissue, the annular attachment to the tissue. And so here on 3D, again, so oriented, this is a little turned, so you can see the posterior aspect of the ring better. The aortic valve is still on top, but just tucked into the back. And you see a large gap with dehiscence. And on the right, you can see the color flow coming through the dehiscence. So that's the mitral regurgitation on the previous image. Um, and essentially, this patient had to go for a, a redo of their um, and a re-op and ended up getting a uh, prosthetic valve. Here, um, so this one's a little sort of off view, just to show you again. This is a 3D, sort of a more you know live 3D rendering, not suboptimal in terms of its image in B2B image. Um, but you do get anatomical awareness of how it relates to the aortic valve, the positioning where the dehiscence is more posteriorly, and affecting um, essentially poor poor use and poor uh, functioning of the mitral valve overall. And so you see that here. This is the big gap. All right, so moving on to some other rare locations. These are just two very interesting case examples that um, I have in my bank. This one, we see uh, tricuspid chordal involvement. So here, this is actually a fellows study on the left. Um, these are exceptionally important. The fellows, you guys see things in the middle of the night and put a probe on, and a lot of times your images will catch things that may not be there later. Um, it, so this is a view of basically more off-axis view, but portion of the RVOT sort of also in towards the tricuspid valve on the transthoracic view. You see something, some echo density independently moving. And uh, so this patient then had a repeat transthoracic, confirmed the same from the initial overnight stat images, and then was sent for a transesophageal echo. And on the left, on the right image, excuse me, on the right image, you can see the uh, echo density that is moving independently on its, uh, in its own blob, but definitely in line with the chordal apparatus of the tricuspid valve. So here we just to point them out. And uh, so as some history for this patient, in this case, she's a 64-year-old female with altered mental status and hypoxia requiring intubation. Her blood cultures grew E. coli in three out of four bottles, so quite virulent in the first day. And her 
uh, altered mental status and um, bacteremia was deemed to be from urosepsis. The hypoxia was less explained, and because of what we saw on the transthoracic and transesophageal echoes, she had been sent for a CT scan to evaluate for pulmonary embolism, which was actually negative. The transthoracic echocardiogram, which I didn't include the full image of, but the parasternal long axis did show a dilated RV. The four-chamber view showed what looked like a McConnell sign, and so actually the patient was sent for a repeat CT to evaluate for PE, which again was negative. And um, so some of these cases are, are rare, they're, they're tough, and so the patient concurrently was currently getting, concurrently getting treated for endocarditis with antibiotic therapy for the E. coli-targeted therapies, as well as uh, anticoagulation for possible thrombus attached to the uh, cortical apparatus. All right, now this patient um, has a very clear abnormality right here. And so this one is a very, very, very rare, unlikely case of endocarditis. I will say that. But in this patient, 55-year-old um, female, known subaortic membrane, had been followed on serial echocardiograms and had persistent fevers with no other clear source. Blood cultures were positive, and the fibrous membrane, essentially, that we saw in the echo looked thicker and more dense than prior. And so the patient had essentially two criteria for surgery. One was the persistent fever as possible endocarditis, and then the second one was a subaortic membrane with aortic regurgitation. So discrete fibrous membranes are about 90% of these cases. They're very rare We're in related to endocarditis, but can potentially have a biofilm over them. Um, it's also stranger because they're less likely to have uh, no involvement of endocarditis on the aortic valve, but hers was clean. And the progression to aortic regurgitation is an indication for surgical timing. So she ended up going for a valve, um, excuse me, she ended up going for um, a uh, resection of the aortic membrane and uh, the valve was actually fine and there was uh, clearing of her, of her blood cultures. And so they actually just did an excision of the aortic membrane. All right, and our last category of transcatheter aortic valves so this is a 76-year-old female with generalized weakness and fever for four days and slurred speech for one day, a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and ischemic cardiomyopathy, a history of a cabbage, and uh, more recently, a 29-millimeter core valve about two years ago. So this is post-implantation. Everything looks great. And these are still frames. I didn't these are from one of my positions, and so I have the still frames. Uh, so here you can see an echo density on transthoracic and on transesophageal echocardiogram, where the leaflets would be. There's an echo density both in the LVO2 side and the aortic side. And on color, you can see it outlined very well in terms of the echo density. So this patient ended up having endocarditis, TAVR-related, and was treated with antibiotics, cleared her blood cultures, and did well afterwards. Here is another case, though, a little bit more complicated. 59-year-old male with heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, EF of 20%, ischemic cardiomyopathy, and has an ICD. Had a history of aortic stenosis, had a bioprosthetic aortic valve, and then had a valve and valve due to progression of the bioprosthetic disease, and had progressive dyspnea with unrelenting fevers for seven days. So, just from these images, we can see, so 
sorry. So the first is on the left. You can't really see the transcatheter valve well. You can't see, it's not really optimized for the aortic view, but I'll tell you this is the best one I was able to find. And in the middle image, you can see the five chamber view. There is several areas of abnormal flow and whether or not they converge and what level they're starting at is difficult to discern. And one thing that when you go back and look at the images after the rest of the case, the patient case had been done, you notice this. So there's this little linear, oh, it stopped growing. I'm going to play again. Well, so right here, you see this structure that was protruding out from in towards the uh, mitral side. So to show you here, here, there we go. So here is the parasternal long axis view. You can see the leaflets of the TAVR are very nice, but you see what was protruding into the mitral valve um, and the left atrium before on the transthoracic image. Here you can see tissue moving up and down the plane. And here's a, a you know, slightly off parasternal, uh, sorry, slightly off orthogonal view and more to optimize the leaflets. And so that's what you see on the right sided short axis view, uh, but you don't see within the aneurysmal pocket. Uh, but here we're looking at flow going in and out of this pocket. And there's on uh, Doppler, you can see continuous wave Doppler shows to and fro flow uh, through this intra inter intravalvular fibrosa pseudoaneurysm. So essentially uh, affecting the aortomitral curtain. And so this is the continuity between the aortic and mitral valves. And this area can be a very concerning um, zone where abscess formation can develop. It would be an indication for surgery. Uh, other things that I'm sure we've, you know, you've discussed before in terms of the uh, avian node and progressive, um, progressive uh, abnormal EKG uh, that can be found. But in this patient, abscess formation then um, deemed that they would go for surgical treatment. So overall, for the transcatheter aortic valve replacement patients, this is a growing cohort of patients at risk for endocarditis. Uh, Staph aureus is about 30% of the cases, often requires redo surgery, mortality is close to 50%. 75% of the cases are occurring in the first year post-implantation with, uh, with a significant drop if you, after five years. Procedurally, uh, as we showed in this case, valve and valve increases your risk of um, transcatheter aortic valve endocarditis, as well as residual aortic regurgitation at the time of implantation. Um, periannular spread is about approximately 20%, also shown in the last case, and then low rates of surgical intervention, as these patients are often more sick. Um, so there is this, there's one or two, there's two studies I wanted to review. One here just looked at, you know, what are the factors that go into why these patients are getting endocarditis and um, you know, we, who, you know, in terms of which patients, which ones are at more risk, and is there anything that we can do about them? So essentially, this one was a study of 1,800 patients, 55 with endocarditis, one-year follow-up, and only nine went for surgery. They saw an increased number of cases with a self-expandable system of transcatheter valves. This has not been replicated in more recent studies. This one is from 2016. They did see, though, that patients with hemodialysis and PAD were at larger risk for, and this, this makes sense, right? These patients have uh, repeated um, in, repeated entry through the, either their dialysis ports or through their fistulas 
or they have repeated skin infections that can be denied as for uh, endocarditis for the prosthesis. So um, Dr. Munger, the same, did a look a few years later at um, surgery plus antibiotics versus antibiotics alone. And this one looked at the infectious endocarditis after Taver International Registry. Um, majority of patients here were treated with antibiotics alone, and they found that cardiac surgery was not associated with improving all-cause mortality or one-year mortality. Mortality was linked more to the pathogen, the event of embolism or stroke or mechanical complications with the valve and the regurgitation. Um, but major limitations to this study was patient selection, and actually 40% of these were healthcare-associated infections rather than patients coming in from home with infection. So, Really, the only thing I could find specific to critical care in terms of endocarditis is um, prevention. And you guys do a tremendous job of this, but uh, with, this, with the TAVR patients especially, that's where it came up. So um, from one of the editorials, a stronger case should be made for aggressive antibiotic prophylaxis and prevention strategies in high-risk patients after TAVR, particularly for patients requiring chronic treatment such as dialysis or readmission to the hospital. So overall, future directions for endocarditis treatments and managements are antibiotic prophylaxis. That's a moving target of who should be given and who should not be given. It's been narrowed over the years. Um, I didn't review that in detail. But patients with uh, prior endocarditis for sure prosthetic material should have antibiotic prophylaxis. There's discussions amongst the cohort of intravenous drug use patients that a tricuspid valvectomy can be a bridge to uh, abstinence and at that time decide on uh, valve replacement once they are in a rehabilitation program. And then TAVR specifics are registries uh, tracking outcomes for device-related infections, patient selection, and hospital control of infection. And that's it. Thank you.